How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the green notebook of Major General David Hodney, the commanding general of the 4th Infantry Division. In this episode, General Hodney shares the approach he's taken to influencing organizational culture, discussing everything from incorporating history, telling stories, and he stresses why communication is so important when leaders are trying to change a culture. So anyways, there's a lot of great nuggets in this episode, and I'm going to quit talking and break out my green notebook, and I hope you do the same. So please welcome to the show, Major General David Hodney. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. Well, sir, before we get to the, the questions, because I really want to focus on culture today, I'd like for you to just spend a few minutes talking about your background for people who may not be too familiar with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll start first with my family. I'm the son of a disabled veteran. My dad was in the 82nd Airborne. He was a private first class and had a parachute accident. He spent his the rest of his adult life working for the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association invest his energy on barrier-free design. And as a young child, you know, my brothers and I would listen to the stories from these veterans who had incredible tales uh, intently. So it's no surprise that uh, in addition to being the son of a veteran, I'm, my brother is also uh, a retired Army officer. We served together for many years. We entered West Point together in the summer of 1987. And he served 26 years of an incredible Army career where he ended as the chief planner at uh, U.S. SOCOM. I was there at CENTCOM, so we got to see if McDill Air Force Base was big enough for the both of us, and uh, which was a great, great experience to be there when he ended his Army career. And lastly, my wife, um, Shelly, who I met at West Point, is also a classmate and uh, served over two decades in her own, her own career. And of course, even out of uniform, she still serves as the senior member of the Hadi family and outranks me in every respect. But uh, I'll just say my Army journey has been a family business. Um, specific to my career, I'll just very briefly served in a wide range of infantry formations, you know, Mac light striker ranger. I commanded a cavalry squadron. And, uh, one thing I coached young officers when I was the chief of infantry is that your diversity of experience throughout your career informs your utility as a senior leader. That's some great advice. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. As you look back on your own career, who were some of the most influential people, that you were able to learn from as you look back? Oh, thanks, Joe. The most influential people throughout my career starts first with my sergeants. Um, I'm a product of generations of sergeants who provided sage advice. They taught me basic skills. They provided a lot of candid feedback exactly when I needed it. They also corrected me when I needed it, holding me to the same standards that you try to live up to. And I'll confess that I'll never adequately, either on this podcast or through the, my remaining days in uniform, never express my appreciation for our sergeants. I remind our young officers entering the Army that their sergeant won't let them down. Uh, they won't let their soldiers down. 
But these young officers must also inspire their sergeants. The sergeants are going to be looking to those officers as the future of our army. Of course, you know, across my journey, I was also fortunate to similarly learn from, from some incredible officers, uh, General Votel, General McChrystal, General LaCamera, General Pyatt, General Ward, General Dubik. I've taken something away from each of them, and I've also blended their approaches and tailored them into something that works for me throughout my career. Talking about uh, NCOs, like I, I remember for me when I was a, or a platoon leader and uh, it was Sergeant First Class Harris, you know, like I was... I was heading way off the deep end and he was the NCO that kind of grabbed me by my collar and brought me back in into the fold, so to speak. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that. You know, talking about the people you learn from and, and you've also, you talked about the diversity of experiences that you've had throughout your career. And what have those experiences taught you about culture? Yeah. So that each of those units have their own unique cultures. So the formations I describe, like mech, Rangers, striker, cavalry—they all have cultures that are just unique, just to the the history tied to those organizations. So, what I've learned is a few things. You know, culture is complex. Culture is about perception and reality. Culture evolves over time. Culture takes effort, and lastly, culture is very powerful. So, if you look at uh, you know the Tradoc defines culture as the values, beliefs, and behaviors of an organization. First off, values, beliefs, and behaviors, you know, the Army values, you know, that's critical to everything we do, trust, discipline. And some people speak only to values, beliefs, and behaviors when they talk about culture. The Act definition also includes an organization. Organizations are made up of individuals, they're made up of leaders, they're made up of teams. And each of those individuals at each echelon plays a role in, in culture. A healthy culture is important to a ready Army. When you look at individuals, you expect individuals to have good character, exceptional competence. You expect them to be committed to our nation, our army, their unit, to each other. You expect commanders to play a role in, in, in culture, that to issue clear intent and maintain a consistent climate. So when you add those two together, the values, beliefs, behaviors, and the roles of individuals, teams, and leaders in an organization, if you add those two together, that absolutely equals trust. I've seen cultures, even in just most recent years, you know, I've seen entrenched cultures, um, you know, informed by perceptions, urban legends, myths. You've seen clash of cultures. You know, the one, you know, you and I shared the experience in the Raider Brigade where we were building a new organization from folks across the Army. You also, I've seen Spartan warrior class culture in a Ranger Battalion. That is absolutely something that, that's expected. And in, in some cases, you know, I've seen enthusiastic, innovative, you know, problem solving, all the things that you want to inspire in culture is something you've got to give some thought to. You know, I've, I've heard some people say that culture is going to be there whether you deliberately shape it or not. You know, you can choose to kind of sit back and the culture is going to develop on its own, or you can choose to inform that culture as a leader. How did you approach, you know, the different organizations you were in? I mean, how, how did you approach shaping and informing that culture? You make a great point, you know, among decisions available to leaders is to do nothing. It's, it's that sometimes, you know, in the case of, a, you know, a Ranger Battalion, the culture was already healthy and vibrant. There were certainly some some adjustments you can make along the way. But, uh, you know, that that's one where I knew as a commander, I, I, I needed to conform. I needed to make sure I was meeting, meeting the expectations of those Ranger sergeants and those Ranger leaders. So I'll, I'll start with another example, which is with the infantry school at Fort Benning, you know, from an organizational perspective, TRADOC and all of the branch schools are incredibly complex. Um, they're organized around programs of instruction or POIs. Each of these you know, programs of instruction are intended to deliver specific training outcomes. You can take the airborne course, the ranger course, the sniper course, et cetera. So that's point one. Point two, they're largely run by sergeants. This is a good thing. It goes back to my earlier comment about my, my respect paid to sergeants. And then three commanders at Echelon align their intent against these programs of instruction. If you're responsible for an airborne you know, training company, you don't then teach sniper tactics. You got to organize your intent around delivering that, to that specific outcome. But from a values, beliefs, behaviors perspective, it requires a closer look. Um, again, it was the organization was largely run by sergeants. They anchored all aspects of the POIs, and this is absolutely the strength of the POIs. And our sergeants are the source of overmatch for our army. 
At the time, this was my first assignment in TRADOC. So I had a lot to learn. And I entered the course remembering my, you know, IOBC NCOs um, who taught me how to manipulate the traversing and elevating mechanism on the M60 machine guy. I remember my first, my black hat at the airborne school who I literally trusted him with my life. I remember ranger instructors um, who were experts in patrol pace, slight selection, who taught me the craft that I you know, still, you know, the principles of patrolling I still rely on today. So I saw the infantry school from my own recollection of my role in the infantry school as a student. And the challenge in the infantry school is every one of our POIs, you know, hosts returning instructors who may never have served in TRADOC themselves. So their own recollection of their own experiences across the infantry school informed their approach. And uh, sometimes the behaviors they adopted or the behaviors they remembered, which, you know, may not necessarily be exactly what we were pursuing in the programs of instruction. So things I observed is most of us have an inflated view of our own performance throughout our courses. So watching ranger instructors evaluate ranger students and they forget, you know, if the, if the trees and Dahlonega, Georgia, on the side of the mountains had cameras back way back when, they might reveal a different result. Um, if the mountains of Dahlonega could talk, they'd probably embarrass all of us. Uh, same goes for the swamps and the Yellow River down in uh, down at Eglin Air Force Base. So if left only to conducting training as they remembered it, the standards actually deviated over time. And sergeants, you know, over time might have made slight adjustments based on personal experience, not necessarily grounded in doctrine. And this now became a new standard that you had to guard against. This is something I term as iterative deviation. It's not unique to the infantry school. It happens in units when folks don't look at the doctrine and don't look at what the standards and expectations are. I'll dig a little deeper. You know, one of the most profound examples of this resided in infantry one station unit training. On the one hand, the thing I was most proud of is our drill sergeants taught new infantry trainees how to employ their individual weapons in a manner that produced almost half of our infantry OSIT companies uh, were yielding experts. I'll never forget, you know, they were, and this is on the new course of fire and the new integrated weapons training strategy. And it wasn't uncommon for, I handed out 20 coins to a company for, you know, new privates who shot 40 out of 40 uh, on the new course of fire, which is incredible. On the other hand, how we received trainees on day one required a closer look. For over 40 years, you know, starting late, you know, the Vietnam War, we received privates in what's called reception in the POI, but has actually become known um, as the shark attack. Um, that's the, you know, kind of the, the, the image of drill sergeants preying on a school of fish that come into the, to the infantry school. And I understand what the shark attack you know, intended to achieve. It certainly exposed new trainees to a high stress environment. It provided a shock to the system, you know, a, a very clear, clear message that you're in the army now. Um, and it also set the tone for uh, the importance of following instructions and clearly established the authority of the drill sergeants. However, the further you dug into it, where every aspect of our courses were defined by tasks, conditions, standards, arguably one of the most important foundation setting event, you know, reception, how you first receive a private in the first hours of infantry one station training was not only undefined, it wasn't outlined clearly in the program of instruction, it was left entirely to each infantry OSIT company to execute that reception as they saw fit. So what you had was a what I'll call a greatest hits collection of you know, inconsistent application of really what's sanctioned hazing that, that frankly no longer serves a purpose potentially in an all-volunteer army. Worse, the behaviors I observed did not at all match the behaviors of professional sergeants who taught me how to lead over the course of my career. So the question is, how do you, how do you adjust that behavior where immediately on day one, the young trainee looks at a sergeant, not in fear, but in, in awe and an inspiration of, of what we're trying to achieve. I recognize that many in our army profess that they're the soldier they are because of their ability to, to you know, survive basic training and overcome the hurdle of a shark attack. But I'd offer on deeper reflection, that's likely only a speed bump on the journey to learn their craft through sets and reps, 
or from expert examples of the leaders they've come to admire and respect throughout their career. And it's not about the first hour of their training. So this was something I knew I wanted to redirect. So as the infantry commandant, I researched history. I came to respect how General Marshall, you know, how he both led the infantry school and later the army through very challenging times. And I was curious how he received trainees and inspired excellence with the greatest generation, you know, bound for known conflict in World War II when General Marshall was, you know, was, uh, was the chief of staff of the army. He himself was a veteran of trench warfare in World War I. He was in the first, first infantry division as a major in World War I. And in September of 1943, many years later, he actually signed uh, FM 2325, which is titled Bayonet. Um, and he, he anchored his approach on the spirit of the bayonet. And I knew that I wanted to do the same for the infantry school starting on day one. You know, the bayonet, for those with the courage to wield it, serves an important purpose when rushing the enemy in the final yards. The spirit of the bayonet, you know, which is defined by the will to destroy the enemy in close combat. And it springs from the fighter's confidence, courage, grim determination. And ultimately, it's the result of uh, vigorous training. This is important because if you look at the infantry school patch, it's got two powerful symbols on it. One is an M1905 bayonet, um, which so you to you know to clearly I just described the importance and power of the bayonet. And you have to look no further than the patch to know to know our purpose. And the other you know powerful words are "follow me," you know, which taught which is incredibly powerful. So. That's one. Just look at our patch, and um, the, the infantry school patch history is is, uh, is important. The second thing I, I conjured the image of you know what it takes to be a good unit. Looking back at General Marshall's experience of World War One, and I I use this even today in the in every newcomers briefing in the Fourth Infantry Division. The Ivy Division was born in 1917 and first saw action in World War One. Earned five battle streamers there, and I remind folks that of units that had to you know, cross no man's land and trench warfare. They, you know, every soldier in those units believed in, you know, some very important truths. First, they believed in themselves. Every soldier believed they had the skill and will to not only make it across no man's land, but to fight and win at the far side. These soldiers knew they were fit, motivated, disciplined, could deploy their weapon and make it. Second, when they left the trench to cross the horror of no man's land, they believed in their teammates. They knew their, the members of their unit were going to emerge from the trench right alongside with them and that uh, they'd always be, be right there with them as they entered the enemy portion of the trench. And lastly, in good units, these soldiers believed in their leaders. You know, across no man's land, you, you believed your leaders had the wisdom and experience to make the tough calls. And they knew that uh, they'd set the conditions for their success, artillery, smoke, fires, the mass of the formation was leaving at once. And they knew when an infantry leader said, follow me, that it meant something. It means victory. And where the bayonet certainly inspired the purpose to instill still the spirit of the bayonet and all who trained at the infantry school, the words of our patch, follow me, inspired our culture. It's about values, beliefs, and behaviors. It's, it's about the, the instructor's responsibility to inspire. And, and, and frankly, follow me. It's easy to say, it's, but it's tough to live up to. And this was the question that we had the conversation about in our culture. And it was important that because I knew this was a significant change in how we approached it. I, I made sure my sergeants were the ones that led the effort. I said, hey, I, I want to instill toughness on day one. But those three truths, belief in self, belief in teammates, belief in leaders, we can do that on day one. We can absolutely inspire that. And my only specified task to the sergeants who came up with what's called the first hundred yards, you know, the initial journey of an infantry soldier, my, the only specified task I gave was the first instruction issued by a drill sergeant would be follow me. And the, uh, my command sergeant major, command sergeant major Rod Fortberry, developed the rest of the program of instruction that uh, certainly met the intent and instilled the spirit of the bayonet on day one. As you look back on on that instance of of shaping a culture, you know, like your intent was to tie what the drill sergeants did to to the history, to the lineage of the follow me patch. How important was it to turn the over the actual execution of that intent to the NCOs, to the guys and and gals actually actually running that? Yeah, because as I mentioned earlier, the 
infantry schools run by our sergeants. And it's important to make sure they, you know, communicate, you know, inform soldiers or effective soldiers. So knowing the reasons why is really important. You know, and the toughest challenge in shaping culture is that it takes time, it takes effort, it requires clear and consistent communication, and it also requires buy-in. So I had to make sure they understood exactly their role in this was critical to its success. And obviously it, it took hold in the first hundred yards, you know, became a staple of infantry one station unit training. But, you know, what, what were some of the challenges you faced either there or some of the other organizations you've been a part of in developing and shaping culture? No, thanks, Joe. That's a great question. You know, I mentioned, you know, that it takes time, it takes effort, it requires constant communication. And there are absolutely some sergeants that believe the shark attack was a proven method and would say, after all, it worked for me, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm where I'm at. But I would offer that I remember looking back, and I'm a proud product of the U.S. Army Infantry School, and I remember the names of every one of the sergeants who inspired me in my infantry school experience. The ones who didn't inspire me, I've long forgotten, and I give them no additional thought. I can't even remember what they look like. So where I turned to history to learn how we arrived at our approach to reception, because this is this is important. I mentioned earlier, I was like, how did they do it in World War One or World War II? How did we mobilize to fight in two theaters and train soldiers in accordance with General Marshall's FM 2325 bayonet? And how did that evolve later in the Vietnam era into what's now known as the shark attack? And it my uh, historian at the infantry school that certainly helped me dig up the details on that. How did we get here? And this, I mentioned earlier, iterative deviation over time, where people make an adjustment to a known standard that now when new people come into the organization and they only see that standard in practice, that now becomes the new standard. And then they insert their own adjustment. And then before long, you're drifting way far away from where you're supposed to be and you forget exactly what the task you were supposed to execute was. So from a historical perspective, the Secretary of Defense at the time, Robert McNamara, approved a program called Project 100,000. And you can you can look this up. It was it was certainly it was attempting to meet the escalating manpower requirements for the Vietnam War. And this project, Project 100,000, brought in soldiers who fell below mental or medical health standards. And in fact, some came from prisons or mental institutions to meet the draft requirements and the manpower needs of the of the war. While in hindsight, many look back on it, they view it as a failed experiment. And some later came to term it as McNamara's folly, McNamara's morons, or even McNamara's misfits. It still yielded more than 100,000 soldiers. It yielded more soldiers than they sought to you know, field in our army. The, this controversial program actually bought, you know, depending on the source you look at, anywhere between 300 and 350,000 soldiers into the army. And this equates to about 70% of our active army today. That's a lot of soldiers. So the scale of this recruiting effort required the enterprise to adopt an approach to ensure these soldiers who failed to meet the, you know, medical standards or came from institutions, they had to, the soldiers had to understand that prison rules don't apply here. And hence what's now known or what, the, what you know, was known a few years ago as the shark attack. So or, again, organizations and cultures are slow to change. I'll give you two examples. Concurrent to that in the army that, you know, came out of Vietnam, staff duty officers and NCOs carried sidearms in the conduct of their duty. You know, many senior leaders would talk about that. And it wasn't to protect themselves and on places like Clay Kasern from Soviet infiltrators, it was to protect themselves from their fellow soldiers who they might have come across conducting, you know, illicit activity or something like that. We've long since ended the practice of carrying sidearms on CQ and staff duty. We haven't done that for, for many decades. In an all-volunteer army, however, we still treated inbound privates and trainees at reception as if they were shipping to us on a prison bus back in 1969. And General Marshall addressed this in his field mount bayonet. He, he included in 1943, he included a chapter specific to instructors that mirrors Schofield's definition of discipline. And General Marshall wrote, it was in chapter five, advice to instructors. He specifically states the instructor must possess an intense enthusiasm, vigor, 
and those qualities of leadership, which will inspire the best efforts of those being trained. He went on to say the instructor avoids boistering, bullying, or impatient methods and uses clear, earnest, and encouraging delivery to secure alert and willing response. That's in the World War II Army where soldiers knew they were going to fight in the European or Pacific theaters. And I'll just simply tell you, our sergeants, everything that General Marshall described are in our sergeants today. And our sergeants remain our Army's source of overmatch, not only to, you know, not solely just to meet today's readiness requirements, but also to ensure tomorrow's Army is better than today's. And it starts starts right there on day one in uh, in our basic and, and one station trainings. You know, history strengthens. And I'm glad, you know, when you ask the question about challenges to adjusting culture, I'm glad I had the time. I had three full years at the infantry school uh, to enable meaningful and positive culture change. I appreciate that you, you know, you talked about cultures being slow to change and, you know, kind of the importance of understanding history. And there's a, there's a story I read. I think it was, uh, I came across it right out of company command. It took place in the British military. It was prior to World War I. They had taken cannons that were used in Africa, installed them as coastal artillery, and they brought in, like all great militaries do, they bring in a contractor to help <laughs> consult them to figure out, because the commander was wrestling with, how do I make these cannons shoot faster? And so this contractor came in, and, and what he did was he took pictures of them going through the drills, and he kind of laid them out. And he went back to the commander, and he said, hey, there's this one part where I don't understand. It's right before they fire, everybody puts their arms down by their side on the left and right of the cannon, and then they fire. And he's like, I don't understand this pause. And the commander goes, yeah, that's when, when they were in Africa, that's when they would hold the bridle of the horses Oh wow! to prevent them from taking off when the cannon shot. And so it's this idea of even though the conditions had changed, even though like that was no longer a requirement, like people were still holding on to something that didn't make sense anymore. And I think that as leaders, that's one of the things as we come into organizations is continually asking why, why we're doing this, you know, in the first place, because there's a lot of stuff. I think there's a lot of holding the horses that still goes on, you know, regardless of, of what level you're serving at. And I think the shark attack is, is a great example of that. Right. Right. Yeah, again, prison bus, 19, late 60s, early 70s, different place and time in our army. And now we've got an all-volunteer army that's that, uh, you know, America entrusts their sons and daughters welfare because they expect the professional treatment. And again, the thing, belief in self, teammates and leaders in a shark attack. And I asked drill sergeants, you know, who comes to the aid of a private who struggles, falls out in a shark attack, not their fellow trainees. They're just trying to, you know, not make eye contact. They're trying to just blend in. They're trying not to do that. It's a drill sergeant that has to help, help out this trainee that might falter or, or fail. So belief in teammates is immediately mortgaged because you're on your own. You got to make it through, through the first hour, first two hours. And then belief in leaders, that sergeant after the shark attack's over is now going to be teaching important you know, classes, parts of the program of instruction that are essential to building a ready army. And they immediately have to reconcile, wait a minute, you were this, you're totally unrecognizable from the person I just saw when I got off the bus. So as opposed to a drill sergeant, and there was nothing more powerful when I saw an impressive infantry drill sergeant look at a group of new platoon of trainees that got off the bus and they, and they're, they're certainly paying, they're holding on to every word that Sergeant says. And when that Sergeant says, follow me and then takes off into what is still a physically demanding activity. It's not just holding bags over your head. It's actually executing some runs with, with gear and equipment. It's team events that require the entire team to figure it out. So where the shark attack is, it's belief in self. It's all I believe in. I don't, my teammates aren't going to be there for me. My leaders are, are not behaving like professionals in the first 100 yards. Self, belief in self, belief in teammates, belief in leaders immediately gels within the first two hours for those who did it properly. And you're tying it back to history. And that's, a, that's another thing that stands out about this because there's two components I see. One, you know, you're going back on your own experiences, going through 
the infantry officer basic course, remembering the NCOs it taught you and, you know, throughout your career. But then you're also going back to the history of the organization. You're tapping back into your knowledge of Marshall, the field manual that, that he wrote, and you're bringing that, that into this. So how important is it for leaders to get beyond their own experiences and, and to, to study the past and, and, and to understand where the organizations come from and even to learn from other leaders that they may have never served with? Like you ne- obviously never served with Marshall but you were able mm-hmm. to learn from him, you know, like 70 years later. Yeah, that's an important part of our journey as officers. It's our responsibility to make sure we're grounded in, in doctrine, where we're grounded in the history of, of our formations. And I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have come up with it on my own. This was, this was like, hey, how did, they, how did they do it back in World War II? And we're also in this interesting period in history where, you know, the habits we formed over 20 years of in operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's not necessarily what's going to get us through the next strategic dilemma we face. So we have an opportunity here. So we can ground ourselves in kind of the, the r for gen model that people are familiar with, which won't get us to where we need to go, or we can we can start with a clean whiteboard and identify what what tasks we need to train on to be able to wage combat and large scale operation combat operations. You just set up the next question and it it takes me back to when you were a brigade commander <laughs> and you made the decision to have leaders remove their combat patches, their tabs and their uh badges when when going out to to training. Could you explain the idea behind that decision? Be happy to, Joe. I'd start with where the infantry school had an entrenched culture. This is the way we execute. We've always executed this way. So this is the way we're going to do it, even though they don't, they don't necessarily you know, give a lot of thought to the outcomes, both positive and negative outcomes. The Raider Brigade at the time, that's the first striker brigade or first brigade, fourth infantry division was transforming from an armor brigade combat team into the army's newest striker brigade combat team. This was the 2014 timeframe. So at the time, you know, we total a wholesale change and the Raider Brigades had a number of identity crises it, under Jeff Martindale. It fought as a light brigade in Afghanistan and then it came back as armor brigade. So in some cases, you find out you either have a non-existent culture, you might have incompatible cultures, you might have conflicting cultures. And to your point about a commander's role, you can either do nothing and let each of the subordinate organizations come up with what they think is an appropriate culture or you can or you can weigh in on it and you know this was a wholesale departure you know it's time when i took command we still had a full formation of 19 kilo tankers had motor pools full of m1 tanks m2 bradleys paladins and in short order this was going to be the fastest striker brigade combat team conversion in the many striker conversions that occurred prior we were going to receive three battalions of infantry and 330 of the army's newest double V hull striker vehicles. So culture, if, if you don't discuss it at a minimum or direct attention to defining it, it's eventually going to be defined on its own internal to your formations. And early on, I, I saw, I recognized I had to direct attention to the defining it. I told you values, beliefs, and behaviors of the army's newest striker brigade combat team. And frankly, I viewed this as an incredible opportunity. I was fielding, you know, soldiers from I fielded multiple cohorts of privates straight out of the out of the infantry school. So almost almost 800 privates out of four OSID companies that were spread across the BCT to just to constitute the formations. And, uh, you know, frankly, what what better way to talk about culture or force the conversation of culture than through a uniform change? (laughs) Uh, You can look at units that are proud of their distinctive headgear, whether it's the color of a beret and an airborne ranger special forces outfit or the Stetson and the cavalry squadron uniforms always inspire some, some conversation as fabs had to have the, the Brown beret that was, was unique to their identity. So the Raider field uniform is important. I tell this again, and you'll find you echo the things that, are important to you. And, you know, I, I talked a lot about character and a few other things. And 
the Raider field uniform had three important things that are, I'd argue are the most important things are uniform. One is the flag of our nation on your right shoulder. We serve the United States of America and swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Uh, the U.S. Army name tape. You're, we serve in the most powerful army in the world. U.S. Army is prominently displayed in uniform. And lastly, your name tag, your name, your personal and professional reputation. And frankly, the that informs your authority in many cases, you know, that especially the more senior you you go in, in service in the army, your name, you know, the willingness of people to work with and for you or seek to serve in your formations, that's important. So those three things are really important. And I'll just talk in terms of values, beliefs, and behaviors. So values first. You know, one of the values I tried to espouse in the Raider Brigade was that character counts more than resume. Some leaders were clearly uncomfortable when they no longer could rub their tab or lead with the tab when they walked in the door. I'm referring to the Ranger tab, of course. And in some cases, depending on the credentials soldiers or leaders wore, they thought they arrived. Uh, They thought they no longer had to earn it each and every day. Sometimes they forgot that learning never stops. And, you know, competence is the entry point uh, and confidence is the end state of training. And the beauty about, you know, removing those, you know, symbols from your uniform is you had to, you had to rely on your own, your own skill and will to accomplish the mission. You know, beliefs, uh, the Raider field uniform in a new formation also intended to show a few things. One, no Raider is more important than another. That was important to me. Two, that everyone, everyone in the formation adds value. And that's regardless of rank or military occupational specialty or prior experience, whatever units you served in. I I talked earlier as well about a clean whiteboard, solving the adaptive problems of our time. Sometimes it's not, hey, this is what we did back in this situation. It's starting with a clean whiteboard. What what is the challenges we're facing? And a clean uniform, clean sleeves was akin to to a clean whiteboard. We're going to solve the solve the problems as if we're viewing it for the first time and acknowledging that what got us here might not get us there. And, you know, essentially the hard fought combat experience from in Iraq and Afghanistan, while all of us are incredibly proud of it, the field uniform was exactly that. It was a field uniform. It wasn't the garrison uniform. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the patches weren't removed from uniforms during routine operations. But I, I tried to communicate that, you know, the experience from Iraq and Afghanistan you know, might not be the solutions we're going to draw upon in large-scale conflict. There's also this phenomenon called the Einstein effect, where it clearly specifies your past experience blinds you to future opportunities, especially when you're constrained in your thought. And lastly, in behaviors, you know, the discipline to do the right thing, even when no one's looking, and even the attention paid to being in the right uniform and in the same uniform as everyone else in the formation sets the conditions for the right attitude. It sets the conditions that values, beliefs, and behavior are important, that character counts more than resume, and that ideally that everyone in the formation would recognize that cohesion matters more to winning than anything else. Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So... If you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. We'll talk about communication in a minute, sir, but I heard you say character counts more than resume so many times, and now when you start saying it, my brain immediately starts mumbling it to myself As you're saying it, just because it's like Pavlov's dog. But I remember distinctly, I heard about the people not wearing patches and training uniform from the Army Times, which, you know, was before I got to the brigade. And so I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into. And so 
I remember my first field problem with the Raider Brigade. And, uh, you know, I, I looked across my team and we all looked the exact same. Nobody had Ranger tabs on. Nobody had combat patches on. So I just had to go off of what was there in front of me. And so what I found was that stripped all of my biases that I had. So I, I had to take people at face value instead of having preconceived notions of like, hey, you did this, this, and this before, so you must be good now. And what I found was that our team was able to perform way better because it was that clean slate that you're talking about, that clean whiteboard. And um, it was so impactful to me to even to this day, I still wear the the Raider field uniform mm-hmm. seven, years do I. <laughs> seven years later, uh, like just in garrison. And so recently I've had people come up to me and they're like, oh, are you trying to be a cool guy, not wearing a combat patch? And I'm like, no, I... I explained the same thing that you just told me because I heard it so many times. I'm now echoing it. And I say that, hey, no, like every day, every every problem I encounter is is a new problem now. And it's all that stuff was great. I'm really proud of it, but it doesn't matter anymore. That's right. This is what matters right now. So I, it's one of those things that just sticks with you and you take with you. So I thought that was just extremely powerful for the culture of that organization. Yeah, no, thanks, Joe. And, and make no mistake, you know, I'm proud of the units I've served in. And when I wear my 2nd Ranger Battalion combat patch, if I wear my 25th ID combat patch, I think about the soldiers I share those experience with. And I have deep respect for my sergeants who coached me through those experiences and supported me as we tried to accomplish all, all missions. But all combat experience is also not equal. And everyone in our Army knows that. So there's danger when you draw conclusions about what someone knows or doesn't know just by what's on their uniform. Your comment about you know, stripping bias because you walk in. I was in the back of a striker with young soldiers doing a walk and shoot down here at Fort Carson. And I get in back of the striker and a specialist asks me if I've ever been to the airborne course. And it's great. You want to have those conversations with soldiers. And if they walk in and or if I get in the back of that striker and I have all my credentials, you know, on display for those soldiers, they're going to draw their own conclusions. It might never open the door to a conversation as opposed to, huh, I wonder if this senior leader has ever had this, this experience, even the little things like that, that a specialist intuitively, you know, removed any, any obstacle to conversation from that is, is important. Another thing that you brought to the Raider Brigade that I actually missed because I, I wasn't there in time uh, <laughs> was this was this thing called a manga die. What are they, and then why do you use them as a as a leader development tool? Oh, thanks, Joe. That's that's something that's been I mentioned a cohort of senior leaders that I respect early on in this interview that passed on this tradition. It's this is an idea that's not not my own. This is carried on in a bunch of units. And frankly, I like to use it as a developmental tool. And there's different approaches to it. You know, I firmly believe there's nothing more rewarding than sharing hardship in the company of fellow soldiers. And in the case of the Mungadai, however, the hardship is not the outcome. It's just a small component to set the venue and tone for learning because you're in these shared experiences that everyone's going to reflect on later. I, I actually call, came to call it a leader academy. Everyone knows that it's still still very much a Mungadai, but the purpose is to establish culture through purposeful shared hardship, and it's aligned against teaching critical skills. So, for example, uh, I identified, you know, in arriving to the 4th Infantry Division, we'd not fully adjusted to the Army's marksmanship standards in the integrated weapons training strategy. So the first event after a foot march was to get to a range and I had all the Lieutenant colonels learn the integrated weapons training strategy under the coaching of our small arms, master gunners. And at each lane, there was an NCO, a Sergeant coaching two Lieutenant colonels as they went through the tables and they, and each of these Lieutenant colonels had multiple sets and reps. So in the Mungadai where it's peer learning, it's all Lieutenant colonels back in the Raider brigade. It was all my captains. It was the 37 company commanders across the striker brigade combat team. In this case, it was all my battalion commanders in the 4th Infantry Division and the staff lieutenant colonels that are in the division division headquarters. And they're with their peers so they can ask the questions of the sergeant. They didn't have to 
you know, fear that they didn't know the standard. So, and it's powerful and they have multiple sets and reps. And over the course of the first day, the team walked over 18 miles under load at elevation. I remind everybody where it's, you know, we're at excess of 6,000 feet here at Fort Carson. And they also had a half a dozen training sessions throughout just that first day alone that broke up the broke up the foot movements and included everything from air assault operations. This was also a chance for the Combat Aviation Brigade to showcase their expertise in teaching class. These lieutenant colonels, we executed an air assault operation into the training area. And uh, we set a doctrinal framework for leadership tasks that range from self-recovery of striker vehicles to complex you know, medical tasks and striker operations. It was pretty powerful. We even emphasized the importance of maintenance as part of that. So our CW5 Chief Miller taught a maintenance class, a graduate level class to Lieutenant Colonels where they can ask in front of their, in front of their peers with no fear, hey, I, I don't exactly understand this process, this report, this outcome, how to work your way through the parts hustle. And uh, they can ask the questions. So that way they can go back to their formations with everything they learned. That was important. Again, that was an important outcome to instill the maintenance culture. And uh, it included hands-on training you know, PMCS of, of various vehicles in our fleet. And it was all intended to be instructional in the context of a shared hardship experience. I just recently did a show with a guy named Knight Campbell, who is the CEO of Karen Leadership Strategies. And, and Knight was a, uh, a naval officer, taught at the Naval Academy, taught a leadership course. And he would take the, the midshipmen up to uh, Mount Washington. And, and he told me, he's like, I learned more about that cohort of future leaders in a couple days on Mount Washington than I did an entire semester in the classroom. And the experience actually inspired him so much that he's essentially leading Mungadize now in the civilian world, <laughs> taking corporations, taking leaders out for shared hardship. And we were just kind of talking through that. And, um, you know, one of the things he said was that a lot of times like leaders have to speak up on these things like, Hey, my, my hands are cold. Cause if you don't mm -hmm. do that, then you get frostbite and, and, and it gets, it gets worse, you know? And so he was just saying that like, Hey, like if you can speak up that, Hey, you need help with something in that group that, that maybe you can go back to your organization instead of pretending like, you know, all the answers, like that you can kind of speak up and say, Hey, you know, I need help with this or just speak up when you need something. And so one of the things that, that we kind of talked about there was the importance of that in organizations of, of, Hey, you know, like you're taking leaders on this manga die, they're among peers. So they feel safe to ask questions, but is the ability to have, you know, feel safe to ask questions when we're back in our organizations as well. Is it that just because I'm a, a Lieutenant Colonel, and, you know, this person who's a subject matter expert is a specialist or a sergeant for me to like kind of push rank aside and get this person to teach me a skill that I don't know to feel safe to do that. And so that's, I think that's, a, that's one of the benefits that those types of experiences just kind of get you the sets and reps, not only learning something new, but of asking questions to begin with. Yeah, you make a great point, Joe, on that, because it, it does set a tone for the whole organization. I loved watching the striker crews out there and my striker operator development course instructors teaching lieutenant colonels on striker recovery. And they, they mired these strikers in some pretty tough terrain to pull them out of. So that was, that was a great team building event, but the soldiers took note watching these lieutenant colonels work through those tasks. You mentioned about learning a lot about your people. I did this in the first two months just like it did in the Raider Brigade. I did it early on as I was trying to establish the Striker Brigade culture because it's it's like being in an isolated facility, an ISOFAC, where you can you have nothing but their undivided attention and they have your undivided attention because we're out there together. So I learned a lot in the first two months. Together, the, these lieutenant colonels and I still joke about many of the experiences that we shared because there's, there's always inevitably some uh, great stories that come out of these experiences. But I do want to make a point on, you know, if anyone's listening and considering implementing these strategies, this is as important to trust as anything else. In other words, you can certainly do a Mungadai where people might fail. Uh, there might be tasks that are arduous. There may be in the, in the Raider Brigade Mungadai, you know, there was one individual broke his thumb, you know, because he didn't heed the instruction that was 
hey, don't put when you're doing the, the recovery of the vehicle, don't don't put your hand in this spot. And sure enough, one of the captains did and got evacuated. So didn't didn't finish, but it was a powerful lesson on, hey, this, the, the standard was pretty clear and so on. In this case, what I did tell, these are lieutenant colonels, they're senior officers. Some of them probably haven't rucked to those distances in quite some time. So I had to, before we even stepped off, there was clearly some some anticipation in the formation. You know, I told them, trust me. And I told them, we're all going to finish this. And because it's a leader, it's again, it's a leadership event. It's intended to be a team building event. And you know, we can certainly debate different approaches to it. And I made decisions along the way because there were people you talked about. If you get frostbites fast approaching, someone's got to speak up. And there were decisions along the way. And I could tell the folks that, you know, and I had all, all ranges of military occupational specialties or branches. So I had, I had aviators, I had logistician, you know, officers, I had um, infantry, armor, you name it. The branch was, the branch was represented. So there were decisions along the way and there was peer leadership along the way. So at the final three miles, I also started community where at first there were unknown distances. I started dropping hints, Hey, we're going to walk three miles to the next points, at least for the folks that could track their pace count or have spatial awareness of moving under load or the time it takes the, the movement rates under load. They knew about how far along they were. And we did have some feet that were certainly needed tending to. So I had an, an FMTV and I told the Lieutenant Colonel, who at that time was the, the patrol leader, I said, okay, you've got an FMTV. The next movement to the patrol base is three miles. You can use the FMTV for whatever, you, however you want, but it's only going to make a one-way trip. So that leader had a choice. I could either put all the rucks in the FMTV or as many rucks as can fit. I could put people and rucks, I can put just people. And there was a, a number of, if, if there were that many people that were, you know, required to get moved by, by truck, but it was a problem they had to solve. They had to talk about, they had to evaluate the conditions and they knew constraints I put on them and ensured that we were all going to make it. And there was no shame because in the end, there wasn't enough room for everybody. So there was a, the bulk of the formation was going to have to move under load and 6,000 feet over hills and mountains to get to the, to get to the patrol base that night. They'd, we all link up and, and they'd continue the next day. So those are, those are important levers that leaders have to include in their plan for a, a leader academy or a Mungadai. Those are some great things to take into account. And, you know, I, as I'm hearing you talk, you know, the, the importance of communication is there because obviously as you're doing the Mungadai, you're communicating why you're doing it. So as you've come up in the experiences you've had, what role does communication play in leadership? And then is it something that comes naturally or is it something that, that you've got to work at? Bottom line, you can't lead if you can't communicate. That's verbal, nonverbal, written. All manners of communication are important, whether inspiring or reinforcing culture uh, to leading change. Any, any, any problem you're trying to solve, clear, precise Frankly, in some cases, concise communication is essential. In the cases where you're leading change, you know, one of my mentors, Lieutenant General Dubik, framed it very eloquently. He, he said, first, you must define what must change. Then you second, you must define what can't change. And third, you have to define what results must we avoid. And that's a real helpful framework, all of which requires analysis and then clear communication along each of those those factors all require careful thought, and that's necessary to communicate effectively. Whether communication comes naturally or not, it's much like my discussion on credentials earlier. Learning never stops. You got to keep working at it. And to communicate well, you have to read, you have to write, and you have to communicate often. So those are the essential tasks. And you know, reading and writing informs your own awareness, and nothing solidifies your ability to communicate more than your detailed grasp of the material. That's first and foremost. You've got to know what you're talking about before you can communicate eloquently on a topic. I always know when someone's reading to me off a script and whenever a staff officer, or even in some cases I've had commanders, brief senior commanders, and they're referring to an obvious script and delivery of the, of the material. And every time someone briefs me off a script, I find myself wondering if they truly 
grasp the material. And oftentimes I'll sometimes say, hey, put the script down. Let's just talk about it. So communicating is an essential task to leading teams, changing culture, inspiring culture, all those things. Yeah, I know for for me, like if I don't write something down and work it out either on a whiteboard or on a piece of paper, I really don't understand what I'm thinking until I see it written down. And so I, you know, that's that's one of the things I didn't learn early on. I, I learned it by watching leaders. I mean, even you, I remember one time I was like, hey, sir, I'm going to draft your commander's intent when I was working for you. And you're like, no, <laughs> I'm going to write my own intent. And that really stuck with me. And then I've had the the amazing opportunity to work for a bunch of senior leaders since then. And everybody in their own way kind of does the same thing. You know, like some people may ask me to write something out, but that's just for them to like start writing their own stuff. Yes, on top a of starter it. belt. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so it's one of the things that I've learned is that great leaders know how to communicate, not just, again, not just verbally, but, but also written in. I think it begins with working your thoughts out for yourself. Yes. So the article, I think it's on your site now. It's the, I wrote for Army Magazine, you know, Commanders as Communicators. Yep. Yep. We've got that as well. I'd encourage you to look at it on our site and not the, uh, not the Army Magazine. <laughs> magazine. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. So I, I appreciate you posting that because that's essential. Commanders have a role. They've got to communicate. They've got to communicate up, down, all around and mastering your own techniques and communicating is important. You talk about intent, you know, General Votel, when he commanded uh, Central Command, just like you talk that character counts more than resume is is burned in your memory. I'll never forget General Votel communicating to every audience he spoke with about the important, you know, his three words were prepare, pursue, prevail. And he talked about every soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, who was deploying in support of operations in U.S. Central Command, first had to prepare. They had to be ready for the experiences. They had to prepare their unit. They had to prepare themselves. And they had to be, you know, deliberately go about that to deal with the challenges that that were across the wide range of challenges across the, the Middle East and, and U.S. Central Command. Pursue. You know, he he always communicated pursuing the enemy, pursuing opportunities. Those were burned in my memory. And then ultimately the combination of good preparation and and aggressively pursuing opportunities, pursuing the enemy, those were the keys to prevailing in that very complex environment. So the way he artfully communicated that to everybody, and I'll go back to before I talk about the commander's role and crafting intent. The other thing about communication is keeping it simple. So belief in self, belief in teammates, belief in leaders. If you communicate something simply that it sticks, that's far more important than anything else. So simple communication in a manner that's easily understood is important. And there's a whole host of other simple terms that are framed in a manner that soldiers you know, can get what you're saying. So when it comes to intent, you know, I talk a lot about intent and climate are the two things that fall squarely on the shoulders of commanders at Echelon. Commander's role, number one, communicate clear intent, and number two, maintain a consistent climate. And considering our conversation on culture, the commander's role in communicating clear intent and maintaining a consistent climate is absolutely essential to a good culture. And intent's not only got to be clearly communicated, it's got to be understood. It's got to be received. People have to understand. And if a climate fosters disciplined initiative and you communicate a clear intent, that's going to yield the values, belief, behaviors that ultimately define the culture of an organization. It's also a continuous process. Soldiers are constantly arriving to your formation. And we're on the personal staff at US CENTCOM as, as his executive officer. I heard that prepare, pursue, prevail, you know, intent communicated time and time again. That airman in you name the airfield across the Middle East was hearing it for the first time. So even the, the General Vattel knew he was constantly capitalizing on opportunities to communicate his intent. And I tell commanders in the 4th Infantry Division at, at every echelon, don't fear being a broken record. If you're first sergeant, if you're a company commander, you know, kind of 
hears it again and you can tell the shoulders sag and here they go. We're going to say this again, just that's acknowledged that your first sergeant's heard it a billion times and ideally can repeat it on its own. But you're always talking to soldiers that may not have heard it. And it's sets and reps. It's important to continue to communicate that as often as you can. The other thing about writing your own intent is intent in a commander's own words or unique jargon is important because you want soldiers and leaders at Echelon to read it. And you also want them to instinctively know that you said it. And that fosters discipline initiative and cohesion that wins. When soldiers know, I can see the commander saying that. And if words are inserted that they know the commanders never uttered, they'll know the staff officer wrote it, or they'll know that some planner threw this into the order and it wasn't necessarily what the commander intended. And that's the importance of commanders communicating, communicating intent from their own, from their own words. What you're saying about repetition, you know, obviously prepare, pursuit, prevail is ingrained in your head. And for me, character counts more than resume. And then there's several others that other leaders have said, and it's because I heard it so many times. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons I've learned about communication is that it's counterintuitive to continue to say stuff over and over again. But I think, you know, General Donahue said the same thing on the podcast. He said, you know, you, you say it till you're you know about to throw up in your mouth. You said it so much <laughs> and it, then, you know, you're only halfway there. Right. Got to keep saying it more. So I appreciate it. You sharing that. And that's, you know, one of the benefits of this podcast is getting to talk to all of you and basically hearing the same lessons, you know, with each of your takes on them. But it's uh, these are principles of leadership that I believe are timeless. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's it certainly is important to communicate clearly because people, you want people to listen, but you want people to remember. And then you also want them to be able to repeat it. And if you say something that's not repeatable, it won't get through the formation of divisions enormous, you know, six brigades between the three brigade combat teams, the Devardi, the combat aviation brigade, the division sustainment brigade. So I'm reliant on commanders at Echelon to pass on the intent, you know, two levels down. But frankly, there's, there's things I want to go all the way down. You know, that, you know, what I talk about, you know, I'm an Ivy soldier in three important letters, I, V, and Y, you know, one, I believe in myself. I believe in my teammates. I believe in my leaders. I'm ready. That sounds very familiar to the lesson I was communicating in the infantry school, the why, who you are, what you do, why you do it is important. You're ready. Soldiers taking care of each other. And together, we are the Ivy Division. And together, we ensure victory. That's where the V comes in. So simple, repeatable, and reminding that it's a team effort. You matter. Every soldier matters in the division. And the leader, I matter. I've got to contribute. I've got to do my part. I owe that to our team. So how you communicate, what you communicate, simple, repeatable, is important. Well, sir, one uh, one final question. I know we didn't... We didn't talk about this ahead of time, but a couple books that, uh, you know, if somebody was asking you for some book recommendations right now, what would you throw out there? So, no, thanks, Joe. The one I'm reading right now, I'll go straight to that. I'm reading a book called Simple Rules. And this I was was part of my uh, Army Senior Education Program. I got from uh, from that that uh, Army War College program. It's called How to Thrive in a Complex World. And this book is about simple rules because we live in a really complex world and it's got adapt full of adaptive problems that we've got to solve. And one of the main premises of this is that meeting complexity with complexity creates more confusion than it resolves. And, you know, the, the authors offer that simple rules tame complexity better than complicated solutions. So that's the that's that's what I'm reading right now. That's what's on my nightstand. I'm also a big fan of you know, for young lieutenants, men against fire, SLA Marshall, that's for, that's a great, that's a great start. I'm also, a, I'm also a big once an Eagle fan. I've read it. I read it twice. I encourage leaders to potentially read, you know, potentially starting your career that I think it was thrown at me first as a young lieutenant through one of my mentors. And then I read it again as a deployed battalion commander. And some of the, what I, what I took out of it the second time around, I guarantee it was more profound than I certainly took out of it the first time. Good to great. You can go down the list of 
books I'd recommend. I'll just stop there. There's, I think, four that I threw out the crowd. Oh, I could. That's perfect, sir. I could geek out here and just start rattling off books. (laughs) We'd lose two thirds of the listeners. Um, (laughs) I'll throw the book is brief and noise. Ah, sir. Yes. I think I do have to give a shout out to that. That could be life changing for our listeners and their own attention paid to the matters most important. I just want to throw that out there as as certainly a direction that our readers should should look to. I've got to echo echo that. You know, brief completely changed the way I write emails, the way I communicate. Mm-hmm. Maybe not this podcast because sometimes I get long winded, <laughs> uh, but but it's great. And fun fact, it was it was Joe McCormick, the author of Brief, who told me to start a podcast. Oh wow! So that's why I'm doing it. I'm actually you know grabbing dinner with him again next week. So there's no telling what next thing the Green Notebook will have after that dinner. But but he's been hugely influential to how I communicate, you know, through email, through writing, and even verbal communication. So I, I've got to echo brief. That's uh that's an amazing it's it's my communications Bible. Yeah, because that you know I don't I don't want to go over time, but I will say that also ties to culture. How you send or don't send communication on weekends when you're not deployed. It sets a tone for culture, your words, how you, how you shape your emails, how you use email in a manner that's not overwhelming for your subordinates is, is certainly conducive to a healthy culture. Yes, sir. Well, I thank you again for your time this evening. This was, uh, it was great to see you again. It was great reconnecting. And again, character counts more than resume. That's, that's not going anywhere. It's the, <laughs> the, the ruts are pretty deep in my brain. So I appreciate you taking the time to share lessons with me and with, uh, with the From the Green Notebook listeners. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate the opportunity and, and thanks for what you're doing to, to lead this effort. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from-